Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I'm glad that we can be here and worship our great God together. It is my prayer, and it has been my prayer, that God would meet with us this morning and that he would strengthen us for this life that we often find ourselves, where we often find ourselves in difficult and challenging situations. So we're going to look at a passage this morning that you are probably not familiar with. We're going to turn to the book of Zechariah. So please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the second last book in the Old Testament. Um, if you work your way back from the New Testament, the first book is the book of Matthew. Before that is the book of Malachi. And then before that is the book of Zechariah. And we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 794. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. So let us hear God's word. This is Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the entire chapter. So 5, verse 1. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the laden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the laden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward, and the wind was in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And, this is the, and when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Let us pray. Dear Father, we certainly need help in just merely understanding this text and then applying it to our own lives and the life of the church. So we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would give us understanding, and that you might transform us and give us obedient hearts that we might obey what you are teaching us in this. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one thing that we realize as we walk through this life together is that there's a mixture of good things and bad things. We go, to, we go to do this task over here, and we find it joyful and satisfying. And then we go to do this over here, and it's just completely frustrating. This time of the year, we, we see the beautiful colors, the vivid colors that reflect the glory and the wonder and the majesty and the beauty of God. And, uh, and then we see these hurricanes that are devastating that creation. 
in our little neck of the woods here in the world, in our little corner of the world, we are at peace. But we know that there will be wars and rumors of wars, and our minds are attentive to wars and the potential of wars at this time. But the scriptures also tell us that there is something else that is mixed in this life, something that we're going to focus on today, and it's this. In this age, the church of Christ will be a mixed community. There will be unbelievers among the members of Christ's church. There will be people who falsely claim to be Christians. And the scriptures not only tell us this, they also warn us that people who falsely claim to be Christians can injure believers and bring disgrace upon the name of the Lord. And so the scriptures raise this problem I just want you to listen to how the Old Testament and New Testament authors uh, recognize this condition. This is not a new issue. This is something that has been present in the Old Testament and present in the New Testament. What is happening when people falsely claim to be part of the covenant community? Well, hear hear what Hosea says in the Old Testament. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is lying, swearing, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. When we turn our attention to the New Testament, we read in the book of Jude, Jude says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, that is, crept into the church, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So these authors are grieving over and warning about the same thing. People are falsely claiming to be part of the covenant community, but they're injuring it and bringing disgrace upon the Lord. Well, when we look at our passage in Zechariah this morning, Zechariah says this, that God will resolve this. God will resolve this. Zechariah is one of the last prophets prophesying before the coming of Christ, and he's foretelling what God is going to do in the future. And Zechariah's prophecy affects three major epochs or eras that come after him, the first coming of Christ, the time that we are in the church age, and the final coming of Christ. But Zechariah is telling his hearers, God is putting an end to the the injury of his people and the disgrace of his name. God will remove those who falsely claim to be part of the covenant community. And the way that Zechariah words this is that God is going to remove the wicked from amongst his people. Now, you can see this already. There are some scripture passages that are more difficult than others, and this is one of them. But whether you're a member here this morning or a non-member, or you're visiting with us, this is a hard word for all of us. If you're, if you're visiting here and you're not a Christian, and, and maybe because Friday was Truth and Reconciliation Day, you're wondering, is God really concerned? Is he really concerned about the holiness and purity of those people who call themselves Christians? And Zachariah's answer is yes, he's concerned. And so this is a message for all of us. This has relevance for all of us. And this is re- relevance. Since God removes the wicked from amongst his people, we must keep careful watch over our lives. We must keep careful watch over our lives. 
And what that will mean is that we need to examine our lives. We need to examine our lives. And then we need to act faithfully in the age that we are in. But it also means that we need to hope in the future. And so the first thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to look back. I said Zechariah's prophecy affected all the ages to come in front of him. And the first thing we're going to look back at is, is the first coming of Christ. Because at that time, Christ did remove the wicked from amongst his people. And we're going to have that moment, that time in history uh, affect our lives. And we're going to say, okay, how, how do we examine our lives in light of that? So look at verse 1 with me again. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, that is, the messenger or angel said to him, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Length is 20 cubits, and it's width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. Now, when we're reading this, you know, we're, we're wondering, is, is, this, is this really in the Bible? It sounds something like, you know, from a fantasy novel or something. But all of this imagery is purposeful, and it's fitting for how God wants to talk to his people about, about what he's doing. And God is enlightening Zechariah through this striking imagery about what he's going to do in, in the future, and Zechariah is conveying this to his people. And so we encounter this scroll, and we know that scrolls were used for writing on. And it, it says the scroll is 20 by 10 cubits. Now that's way too big for a normal scroll. 20 by 10 cubits is about 30 by 15 feet. But when the hearers heard this, when they heard these dimensions, they, they would know what he was talking about. If I, if I say to you, 8.5 by 11, I don't have to tell you what I'm talking about. You know I'm talking about letter-sized paper. Well, 20 by 10 was the size of the law court in the temple at Jerusalem. And this vision is telling Zechariah that there's a, there's a scroll going out with a verdict on it with curses written on both sides, it's going to execute judgment for those who have been disobedient in the land. So it's going out because of this disobedience. But what was the disobedience? What exactly were they doing? Well, look at verse 3. The angel of the Lord interpreting the vision of Zechariah says this, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned up according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So this curse is going out to those who have been stealing and swearing falsely in the land. Their disobedience was monetary related. They, have not been, they weren't dealing fairly with one another in their economic transactions. Each has been lying and stealing with their brothers and sisters. And so this curse goes out, it enters the house, remains on them, and consumes them. So what is going on here? God is executing justice for this disobedience. Some of you already know that in the wake of World War II and the Cold War, Thunder Bay was once thought to be the target of a, of a military strike. I know that may sound kind of odd, why Thunder Bay? But at least it was thought at that time that 
uh, a, uh, a military strike in Thunder Bay would cut off the east-west tie, especially with transportation of goods. And so in the 1960s, the EMO, or the Emergency Measures Organization, set up air raid sirens as strategic locations around Thunder Bay, and then in the 1990s, the, the threat was all gone, and so they decided to take them all down. Well, Zachariah has erected air raid sirens in Israel, and they're sounding. And the voice that's coming out of, what's coming out of them is his voice, his prophecy. And the thing that he's warning about is not a bomber coming, but a flying scroll with curses on it. And this prophecy was partially fulfilled when Christ first came. And that's what we're looking back at. When Jesus comes, he finds people falsely claiming to be part of the covenant community, and it's manifested by their monetary sins. Remember, Jesus goes into the temple, and what does he find? Well, he finds monetary sins. He said to those in the temple, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And it was a result of these and other monetary sins, commercial sins, that he said this. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So Zechariah's prophecy was partially fulfilled when Christ removed unbelieving Israel from the covenant. But what does this mean for us? How does this text speak to our own lives? God removes the wicked from amongst his people. What is this saying to us? Well, notice that God does something in the material world. Notice that the curse burns the houses completely. Remember that the temple itself was destroyed in AD 70. Now remember, these monetary sins, the wicked were, were stealing and falsely swearing uh, against their neighbors. But the wealth that they had gained from this deceitfulness was actually converted into, into material goods. And so their homes were icons or... Uh, symbols of their dishonesty. And so the Lord said he was going to destroy these symbols of deceitfulness. The scriptures talk about Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was one of the last evil prophets of Judah before the Babylonian exile. And, Je and Jehoiakim had this beautiful palace, but he wasn't paying wages. And one, of the, one, of, one version of scripture talks about his defrauding like this, that he built injustice into the walls and oppression into the door frames. His sin was manifested in the material world. So what does this demand of us? Well, we must examine our lives by looking at our material goods. You know, sometimes we say, if only walls could talk. Well, what if they are talking? What are they telling us? Have we acquired goods by lying and stealing? Have we, have we lied in our economic transactions? Now, lying and stealing is not something that is beyond Christians. It's, it is not uncommon for Christians to find themselves in patterns of sin. As, as a member of Christ, uh, you know, a true member of Christ's community, you may have lied and stolen things. There's this, there's this book called, uh, a book called The Peacemaker. If you don't have that book, I would recommend buying it, reading it, and putting it on your shelf for future reference, because it talks about how Christians need to reconcile with one another once they're in conflict with one another, and it also deals with 
how to reconcile with one another if there have been monetary sins, if we've stolen from each other, what do we do? How do we make restitution and how do we forgive one another and restore our relationships? And so true Christians can go through this. However, this passage is cluing us into something else that could happen once when we are in the process of examining ourselves. We find that we're really not a Christian. Our material goods, our injury to others, our disgracing of God's name are all telling us that we have a fundamental problem that's not rectified yet. We find in ourselves no evidence of saving faith. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible, whether inside the church or outside the church about money, comes from the context of false believers in the church. Listen to this verse. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The Apostle Paul gives us a clear directive. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. We must let the past test us because God has removed the wicked from amongst his people. We, we must learn from this past event. Well, what do you do if you find yourself in this situation? Well, you need to know it's not too late. What we're going to encounter, or what you're going to encounter when you truly see the gospel is something very countercultural. Right now, we live in a culture of commodification. Everything is turned into a commodity. It's like everything is for sale or everything can be bought, and it's kind of like we're living on the price of right, and everything has a price tag dangling off of it. But Jesus said, my house is going to be a house of prayer, and prayer is free. Salvation is free. Christ already took the scroll of death. Jesus paid the price. And so you can come with nothing but faith in Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness for lying and stealing. He will grant it. And you can become a true follower of Christ. But know this, if you do not, God said that he will remove the wicked. As a true Christian, you are secure in the arms of God. Christ said that no one can snatch them out of my hand. But if you're a false, if you claim, if you are a false believer, the curse will, of death will remain upon you, and it will ultimately consume you. So we've looked at this past, and we're we're having it examine our lives, and now we're going to turn to the present era. God said that He is going to remove the wicked in our era, and how, what do we need to do? Well, he's asking us to act faithfully in our time. So look again with me at verse 5. It says, Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. 
And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the laden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket, and he said this, that, in other words, what's in the basket is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the laden weight on its opening. So the angel interpreting this vision for Zechariah shows him a basket containing a woman, a wicked woman. Now probably the best way to understand this wicked woman is to understand her as the unfaithful wife. Over and over, again and again, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, unfaithful Israel was conveyed as the unfaithful wife. The Lord is the husband, Israel is the unfaithful wife. And so what we have in the basket is the wicked or unfaithful wife, Israel. Now, regarding this basket and the lid, these were actually representative of their sins. The word for, for basket in the underlying Hebrew is ephah. And an ephah was a measuring basket for grain and other products. It, it was the container that they used in their economic transactions. And so this container was symbolic of the very sins that they were committing. They were, they were lying in their transactions. And this lead lid was actually representative of the coin, their currency. And so this imagery is telling us that the very sins that they were caught up with have now caught them. The Lord has identified the wicked in the land. He's captured them according to their sins, and now he's ready to send them out. And Zechariah is prophesying that this is what God is going to do. My wife and I, we like hiking and Usually we're in a place where there's some rugged terrain and steep cliffs. But if we're in a provincial park or a state park, we usually come across signage. And the signs will say danger, steep cliff, stay back, warning. And what I've come to see when, when I'm looking at these signs is, is that these signs are for everyone. There's a warning about something. And that means everyone who sees the sign needs to do something. It's not just for people who have fallen off the cliff. And this is kind of what Zechariah's prophecy is like. This prophecy warning us that this is the situation is asking the entire church to do something. We all need to do something. We need to act faithfully in this life, in this moment. And what does that mean? We're, we've, we've been presented with this dilemma that there's going to be people who falsely claim to be part of Christ's church, injuring it and bringing disgrace upon the name of the Lord. What do we do? Well, it's going to require a great deal of maturity because there's just not one thing to do. There's a whole array of things to do. But before I get to that array of things, I just want to say one thing, that when you're brought into a church community, when you come together as a church community, the main thing that we are to be doing with one another on a horizontal level, horizontal level is love. The ebb and flow of all of our relationships, whether it's in communication with one another or how we act with one another, needs to be done in love. That whole list in, first, in, in Corinthians. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not keep a record of wrongs. That whole thing. That's the way we are to act with one another. That, that's the word that encapsulates what we do. But love also protects. 
Love protects. It protects from injury and protects the grace, the glory of God. And so, with this situation that we have before us, how does it unfold and what do we do? Well, sometimes people who falsely claim to be Christians just walk away from the covenant community. John tells us that they went out from us, that it may be plain that they are not of us. And so the Lord calls us to observe, to meet with them, to pray, to love. I'm sure that we all have loved ones that are in this situation. So this is how we need to act faithfully. But sometimes, as the scriptures say, the wheat and tares are indistinguishable. We are not to harm the weak, and so we are to wait. We are to be loving and patient. We are, we are not to harm the life of an actual believer who may be young or immature or, or struggling in the faith. We are to think the best of our brothers and sisters. But God also requires us to do more. He requires us to address one another when we are sinning. We are to keep regular watch over each other's lives. And we are to address sin. Yes, there are all these sins over here that we need to overlook, but there are those that we cannot overlook. Paul addresses the Corinthian church about a man in the church sleeping with his stepmother. And he tells them, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. You are not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. You are to purge the evil person from among you. And so the Lord wants the church to be actively engaged in removing people when necessary. Those who are involved in serious, tangible sins, whether in faith or in practice, who have unrepentant hearts are to be removed from the church. And we would just be following Christ's instructions in this. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In the scenario that Jesus brings up, you see there's, there's three major things that are going on here. There's serious sin going on. There is tangible evidence that this person is sinning. The, the circle is widened, so all of these people are involved, but there's no repentance and no repentance and no repentance and no repentance and no repentance. And he says, you need to treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. And why would you treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector? It's because they're not acting like a Christian anymore. As far as the church is concerned, they don't look like a Christian anymore. But thank the Lord we have these examples in the scripture that this example that Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians and then in 2 Corinthians it's resolved this person sleeping with their stepmother and it's through this process of church discipline they don't repent, don't repent and they were disciplined and they finally repent and, the, and Paul says now you welcome them back into the church Psalm 141 should frame our hearts and says this let the godly strike me it will be a kindness if they correct me it will be a soothing medicine don't let me refuse it. And so church discipline is for repentance and reconciliation and spiritual growth of true believers. But getting back to what we're talking about here, we can't shy away from this. 
I can't shy away from this fact that church discipline, in addition to these things, is also a way that Christ wants us to remove the wicked from amongst his people. We are to be awake and attentive and to act. We are to keep watch because we are a mixed community. The church needs to guard its purity and its witness to the world. Now, this does not mean that we become completely suspicious of one another. Nor does this mean that we become the police. We don't come in here to get a badge and we're deputized. And this looks nothing like the morality police. This is not the morality police. This is not something incidental. This is not something that the Lord doesn't require. Nor does this strip the joy and the gladness out of receiving new members into the church. Church discipline is actually a way that new members will know that they're safe and they're loved and they're protected in this community. And so the Lord is calling us to act faithfully in the present. Now I said this is gonna be a hard text, it's a hard text, and so we need to receive it with humble and meek hearts. We've looked back at the past and we're saying, okay, we want the past to, to examine ourselves, and so we're asking it to examine ourselves. In the present, we're saying, well, okay, what do we do? God wants us to act faithfully. But the other thing this text is pressing us on to is that we need to look the to the future at Christ's second coming. And the Lord is telling us to look forward to that moment in hope. So look at verse 9 with me. Zechariah says, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings, and they had wings like a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it, and when that is prepared, he will set the basket down there on its base. So again, we have all of this strange imagery going on. There's two stork women lifting up a basket over to the land of Shinar, and they're placing it down in a base. Well, what is going on here? Well, we know from the book of Genesis that the land of Shinar is actually where the temple tower of Babel was built. And so this is where it's going is Babylon, and it's, it, the place is being symbolized as a wicked place. And then our text tells us that there's a house there. Well, in Hebrew, the word for house and the word for temple are exactly the same. And it seems like the best way to understand this is to understand it as the temple. And the wicked are being plunked down in the temple of a false god, of their false god. And so that leaves us with this stork imagery. And what's going on with the stork imagery? Well, storks were unclean birds. Israel was forbidden to eat them. Unlike the cherubim in, uh, in the temple, the stork is representing something unclean or something wicked. And so the full picture that we have is this. We have the wicked being hauled off by wicked birds into a wicked place, into a wicked temple. Now some of you may be familiar with a formal... Uh, practice of punishment, um, how to penalize somebody, how, how to uh, uh, inflict punishment upon them. And there's a practice called penal transportation. Some of you may be familiar with a, a ship called Neptune. 
and it was a penal transportation vessel used by the uh, British Empire in the 19th century, and it hauled off convicts from the British Isles all the way down to Australia. And this, this, this very this similar practice was actually ancient. It went back to the 4th or 5th century BC, and, and Greece used it. So it, was, it has been around for some time. And it's not the same kind of exile or punishment that the, the Jew that was inflicted on Judah when, in, during the Babylonian exile. The Babylonians came in and wiped out their society and culture and then hauled everybody off to Babylon and plunked down in their culture there. Well, penal transportation is not like that. In penal transportation, criminals are removed from the society that they were in. And the society that they were in remains intact. Like part of the punishment is being removed from society and its privileges. And that's what Zechariah is talking about here. Penal transportation. The wicked are being hauled off. And Zechariah's prophecy, we said, uh, affected or spoke to the first coming of Christ, the, the, uh, the age that we are in, but it also speaks to that final age. And as Christians, we are to look forward to that day in hope. There will be no more injury to Christ's people, and there will be no more disgrace upon the name of the Lord. Paul said that his entire ministry was done in the hope of eternal life, but this hope Will, merely, will not be merely hope. We don't hope in this just because our internal struggles will end. It is also because our external circumstances are going to change. And it's going to change first and foremost, of course, because we're going to be standing in the presence of the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But that would be no blessedness at all if all of our external problems were not resolved. It will only be blessedness when the wicked will no longer be amongst God's people. We cannot imagine a blessed hope without this situation being resolved. And so Zechariah is prophesying, and his prophecy applies to the final day when God will once and for all remove the wicked from among his people. Jesus said of his first coming, I did not come to judge the world but to save it. But he said of the second coming, I will say to those in the basket, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels in the land of Shinar. For I was hungry and thirsty, and you stole all my food and drink. He also said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom. Gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it is precisely here, as we are looking forward to this sobering and solemn moment, that the Lord Jesus calls his people to hope. The church will no longer be a mixed community. There will be no more lawbreakers in the midst of God's people. There will be no more causes of sin in the land. There is no one to disturb the body. God will enact penal transportation. Our communion with God and our communion with each other will no longer be threatened. There will be complete purity 
in the church. And Zechariah is telling us to hope in the future for the Lord will finally remove the wicked from amongst his people. There is, day, there is a day coming when the church will no longer be a mixed community. So what can we say in closing? How do we frame our hearts as we leave and further consider these things? Well, we find a pattern amongst the Old Testament prophets whenever they spoke of the removal of the wicked. And we actually see the same thing in the Apostle Paul. Listen to Jeremiah. Oh, that my eyes were a fountain of tears. I would weep forever. I would sob day and night for all my people. Listen to the Apostle Paul. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. In other words, he's saying, God knows who my heart is, and this is what it is. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save me. And these men are only reflecting God's heart, who does not delight in the death of the wicked. We know our hearts are right when alongside our hope there are tears. Hard-heartedness and apathy have no place. There is no room for self-righteousness or self-exaltation. The only reason we can claim safety from this penal transportation is if we are trusting that Christ climbed in the basket for us. Christ climbed in that basket and Satan slammed the lid down. And he was hauled off outside the camp to Shinar. And he stayed in that basket, but it could not hold him there. He blasted the lid off that cursed thing, and he rolled away the stone with his resurrected power. And now, no curse can touch his people. The, 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 the curse of the scroll, the angel of death, will pass over your house and your life if you are trusting in him. And that is the only place that we can find any safety. So let us keep a diligent watch over our lives. Let us test ourselves in light of the past. Let us act faithfully in the present. And let us hope in the future. May we humble our hearts with hope and tears, knowing that the Lord is serious about removing the wicked from among his people. Let's pray. Father, this is certainly a sobering word to hear, but you have it in your word for our good and your glory. So help us now that we may be strengthened to obey it, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.